The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I've eagerly anticipated this day. It's been delayed somewhat because of my uh, recovery from surgery, but now I'm more than happy to stand before you this morning and take uh, my part of this service today. So I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6, and I want to read these scriptures, and then we will begin commentary as we consider the subject, the model deacon. Uh, if you found that sixth chapter, we begin reading in verse number 1. And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I'm not sure that if we have any visitors with us today, but if you are visiting, you might not be aware that this service is an unusual one. On any other day that you would visit our church, you would experience only a part of what we'll do today. Uh, We always have the singing, we always um, read the scriptures, we always pray, and then we always hear a message from God's Word. But but today we're blessed to add one of these rare experiences to our uh, services. Uh, This is not a normal procedure that we do, but this is the ceremonial ordination of a man into the diaconate of our church, that is, into the office of deacon in our church. Now today is also unusual because Uh, In the time that I've been here, we've never done this on a Sunday morning. This is usually something that would happen in an afternoon service or an evening service. But I thought it would be best for us to do it this morning so we would have a a larger gathering of our people uh, to see the procedure and hear the message that that accompanies this ceremony. My sermon is of a different type, but we'll still look into the Word of God today to establish our foundation and show you the reasons that we have a ceremony such as this. So I don't really think that apologies are are necessary because we catch someone unawares. You might not have been in a service like this, and I think there are probably some members of the church that are newer members, and you haven't seen this uh, done, uh, neither have you seen this done in the church before. Oh, in a message a few weeks ago, I said that when I became the pastor of Berean, there were 
practices, some practices that I thought needed correcting. There were several of them. Most of them were doctrinal issues. But there was also this. There, there was not a ceremonial ordination of deacons. There wasn't a, a, as far as I know, this had not been done here, a ceremony as part of the induction into the office of deacon. Now, lest you misunderstand that statement, um, whether New Testament practice was breached in this, I will tell you that there is no place in the scriptures that says that we must have a ceremonial, a formal ceremony rather for pastors and deacons. There is no agenda outlined in the scriptures for how that we would do this. There's not a schedule in there that we go by. The only thing that we have in scripture is what we find right here in the sixth chapter about this, and that is the laying on of hands. This is exemplified in verse number six, uh, after the people chose the men that they wanted for the office, the Bible says that they prayed over them and laid their hands on them. And you see that. And when they prayed, they laid their hands on them. And, and this would tell us that anything that we do beyond the laying on of hands is more of an expediency than it is a command. And if there is a hint of any ceremony this would be the indication of it. We can't conclude from it that a ceremony is necessary because it appears from Scripture that it is the selection of the men that is their ordination. It is the election of the men to the office, and the ceremony is just a further indication of our approval. But in any case, Brian didn't use a ceremony before, and I I believe it probably had to do more with a misunderstanding of the purpose of the ceremony and the value of such men that are uh, do this work in the New Testament church. There are two scripturally mandated offices in the church. These are pastors and deacons. They are complementary offices. They are not equal offices. And I believe it's because of the, the fear of this ordination ceremony that it appeared made it appear that the offices were equal, that it stoked perhaps an an attitude of rivalry. And I've seen this happen in some Baptist churches, which I'll explain in just a moment. But the truth is that none of us, as pastors or deacons, are lords over the church. We are set in our proper order according to New Testament scriptures. But there is no indication that there should be any sort of a power play to establish authority that we don't have and anything that would be out of the order of Scripture. And I, and I do want you to understand that what you'll see later does not mean that I ordain deacons. And it doesn't mean that deacons ordain deacons. It is the church that ordains the men for the office. You are the ones that approved this man. And you did it way back in January in the annual membership meeting. It was then that you voted to put the man into the office. So this is not the official ordination. This is only an affirming uh, ordination. It's, a, it's only an affirming ceremony. It's an added feature that together we dedicate one of our faithful brothers to the Lord's work to serve the church as a part of the diaconate. Now, another comment that I would make is that the election of Kyle Wells is the agreement of the church that he is qualified for the office. It is the agreement that he meets the biblical standards 
And again, the ceremony is a reaffirmation of a previous decision of the church. This is more of a formal way of demonstrating approval. The laying on of hands, that we'll do in just a few minutes, is a humbling and it is a, a beautiful emblem of what we believe about Kyle in our hearts and what we believe about his service to the Lord. Let me also say that this is a personal, pleasurable experience. For Kyle, I don't know, maybe there's some nervousness. Uh, he may be a little bit nervous about it. I remember when Matt Kaczynski was ordained that he was a basket case. I mean, he, he kept asking me over and over and over again, what, what am I going to get it right? What am I supposed to do? And, and uh, uh, will I make a mistake when we do this? And it became a pleasure to watch him squirm. So that was also a pleasurable experience. Uh, I don't know if Kyle feels that nervousness, but I do remember my ordination. And I remember that it was something for me to squirm about. Now, in our church previously, where I came from, uh, our ordination of deacons was the same as that for pastors. Um, I had to know the church statement of faith, forwards and backwards. I had to ask, answer doctrinal questions. I had to know where I stood on the Word of God and what the church taught and uh, all these different aspects of it. And I was questioned about all of those things. Well, we're not going to ask Kyle any questions, so you can rest easy about that. There won't be a test today. Uh, rather, Kyle has been tested through the years, and we've known him to be faithful. We've known him to be studious in the Word. We've seen Kyle grow in the faith. We've seen a young Christian that really just latched on to doctrine and church principles. We've heard him teach in front of this congregation. A few years ago, when Kyle was much younger, he, he wrote to me asking me about the office of deacon. He had several questions. Uh, that's not part of my discussion today, but I appreciated the inquisitive mind, the desire to better understand what the church uh, teaches and believes. And since then, Kyle and I have had many conversations. It's not uncommon for us to talk about church doctrine and to clarify certain issues that maybe not well or maybe not well understood and that's really what it takes to gain this position it takes somebody who cares about the word it takes someone who cares that they are right first of all and foremost of all about the word of god and in a few minutes I'll talk more more about that and I just say it now because I can reemphasize that very important point later now returning to our text in acts chapter 6 this is the historical record of the first men that were chosen for the office of deacon. There is some dispute that the diaconate is under consideration in these scriptures. But if this is not the place that we find that they are first chosen, it would mean that Paul suddenly sprang this idea on uh, this concept upon Timothy in his letter to him just a little bit later that we read a few minutes ago. I don't believe that that makes sense. And so we look back further to the earliest days of the church where we find this concept of this office first introduced to the church. And that first church, that was the prototype for others. And then later, Paul would write to a Gentile church on this subject and tell them uh, about the office and what was appropriate for the good order of their churches. As we read there a moment ago, he said the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. 
And this was Paul's purpose in telling Timothy about these things so they would understand what is best for the church. Now, the reason for the office is described in these verses with some insightful comments about the men that were chosen. Now, you'll notice in verse number one, the chapter begins, and in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied. And there we find the key for the establishment of the office. The office grew out of a specific need. It was precipitated by the rapid multiplication of disciples. By Acts 6, there were many people saved and added to the first church. Starting back in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 people that were saved and baptized and added to the church. And that condition gives us our first observation. The first would be the necessity for the church. That is, the necessity of this office for the good of the church. The church grew rapidly. Phenomenal growth would be the proper description. Christ promised that he would build his church. And we can debate what all that that statement means, but it surely means this, that he would increase his church numerically. The apostles took the commission to preach and baptize and make disciples. They took that commission to heart. And in a few weeks after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit came and they were empowered to be effective witnesses. And it was expected that those that came to Christ would become a part of the church. And that is the logical progression of Christ's plan. People would be baptized, and by their baptism they would signal that they had received Christ by faith, and they were ready to take part of his work. Their baptism brought them into the church, as we read in Acts 2 verse 41. So these people would become not just attendees of the church, but they would take their place to follow in the apostles' footsteps and do what the apostles did. They they obeyed the Great Commission because it is a church commission, not just the apostles' commission. Now, if you'll turn back in your Bibles a few pages to chapter 2, you'll see the obedience of converts to the gospel. This was on the day of Pentecost when... Uh, The Holy Spirit first came upon the church, and we notice what happened when Peter, or after he preached a moving, outstanding, spirit-empowered sermon. So in the second chapter, verse 37, Peter had just finished his sermon, and the reaction of the people to the message is recorded. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer to the question was repent and be baptized. They received the word 
They repented of their sins. They believed in Christ and they were baptized. By faith they were saved and by baptism they were added to the Lord's church. And by the way, just as a point of doctrine, it does not say that by faith they were added to the church. If that was true, then baptism doesn't need to be in the passage. Faith brings us into the kingdom of God. Baptism brings us into the church of God. Now, faith is necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for church relationship. So this is the expected response to the gospel. Those that have received the gospel of Christ will follow that reception with baptism and with membership in the Lord's church. In fact, that's one of the proofs of true belief. Obedient believers follow the Lord's commands. They identify with Christ in baptism and join themselves to the local church. Well, on the day of Pentecost, just starting out, there were 3,000 people that received Christ. Twelve apostles had a very busy day baptizing 3,000 people. And by the end of the day, there were 3,120 members of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Now, I can't even imagine what it would be like for a church to grow from 120 to 3,120 in one day. It went from a small church to a mega church in one day. And that wasn't the end of the rapid growth. If you go on reading from chapter 2 until chapter 6, you'll find in chapter 4 that there were 5,000 more men that were added to the church, and that was besides the women and the children. And then in the fifth chapter, it says that multitudes more believed and became a part of the church. And so by the beginning of chapter 6, when it says the numbers of disciples were multiplied, they were really multiplied. There were upwards to 20,000 to 30,000 people that had become members of the first church of Jerusalem. And that growth didn't stop. If you look at the end of our section in verse number 7, there it says the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of priests were added to the faith. So people were getting saved everywhere. And I would say that this produced an organizational problem. It produced an administration problem. How are 12 apostles, 12 men, 12 preachers, 12 leaders, how would they deal with the spiritual and the physical needs of the people? And those physical needs were great. The apostles were forced into this discovery. They said something must be done. Now, I would submit that their next decision was a Holy Spirit-led decision. When the Holy Spirit moves the church in ways like this, He has a method of handling the effects of his movements. Moses faced this with the children of Israel. There were at least two million people that came out of Egypt in the Exodus, and Moses was the leader. Two million people means two million problems. And Moses couldn't handle all of that, and so there were other men that were selected, other leaders under Moses' authority, and they took care of the lesser matters that Moses didn't have time to deal with. And this is what we see here. Church organization needed to change. A way to take care of the many needs of God's people must be provided. And so with this increasing membership, another office of church leadership was necessary. And this is the reason then, the reason now, that we have the office of deacon. 
It was an organizational change in response to a new need. And that need is brought about by the Holy Spirit's movement upon his church. Now, I know it's the case because later we read in 1 Timothy that there are more detailed instructions about the qualifications for the office. We know that this is not an office, just created on a whim of the apostles. So the Holy Spirit inspired Paul in that passage to write more details about the qualifications of the men who would be selected. Growth is what fueled the Holy Spirit's movement. Uh, Growth is what fueled the selection and the Holy Spirit's movement caused the need for this additional church office. This is what the church needs. It needs biblical organization. The church is both a living organism and it is an organization. When we talk about starting new churches, the, the terminology we use is that we are organizing new churches. But there are some who deny that the church uh, is an organization. They agree only to the organism part. And we do totally agree with that. The church is a living organism. This is why it's called a body. But how many of you have disorganized bodies? I don't see anyone here with an arm growing out of the top of your head. Uh, Everybody here has two feet at the end of your legs. You have a nose in the middle of your face. You have an ear on either side of your head. And I would say that the living body is very highly organized. Uh, If not, some of you would look much weirder than you do. It is a very organized body. So very simply, the office of the deacon grew out of the spirit's activity which produced an organizational need. Well, the next thing that we see in the passage, our next observation is the quality of the man. And this gets now into the the heart of of the selection uh, for deacons. Once the apostles realized the need for better organization, they also understood that help in the ministry can't be filled by just any type of person. In the church, there are people in various stages of their sanctification. There are some that are new Christians. They're just learning the faith. There are some that are marginal in their commitment. There are some Christians that are questionable in their conduct. So we can't just put anybody into the ministry who isn't spiritual. A minister is a servant. That's what the word means. And in one sense, we can say that all of us are called to be ministers. All of us are to serve the Lord in his church. And all of us should live exemplary lives so we can be used in church service. But we know that there are specialized forms of ministry. The pastor is a different type of minister from other Christians in the church. He has a ministry that is unique. Uh, It has its own purpose. He has a unique ministry of shepherding and teaching the people. The diaconate is also a different type of ministry. These men are different from other church members, and they are different from the pastor. Now, that that needs some explanation. I say that they are different because they have an office now that elevates the man. It is an office of esteem. Let me qualify those statements, lest you misunderstand. The deacon's office, as I said before, does not make them lords over the church any more than the pastor is the lord over the church. But the man does have a special office that is different from any other type of minister. And since he is different, the Bible gives special qualifications for the man. Obviously, 
not all men in the church at Jerusalem had the qualifications. So the apostle said in verse number 3, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. This does not mean that there were only seven men in a church of twenty or 30,000 that were worthy. It doesn't mean that men who are not deacons are dishonest men, that they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they're just simply duds. It doesn't mean that at all. They said, start looking for seven men that are honest, seven men that are of good reputation, seven men that have demonstrated Holy Spirit activity in their lives, seven men who are wise. Not necessarily seven men who went to seminary, not seven men who have master's degrees, but seven men in whom you can see God working in their lives. Now truly, they could have said, find 20, find 30, find 40 of that type of man. The number seven here doesn't mean that we have to have seven. We must have seven. We can't have less than seven. And we can't have more than seven. That's not the meaning of this. But regardless of how many men they would choose, they must be qualified for the ministry. Now we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is where we see more information about the qualifications for the office. Uh, We read the verses earlier. They do bear repeating. Uh, 1 Timothy is sort of a church manual written by Paul with good advice for a young pastor named Timothy. Chapter 3 outlines some information about deacons. It begins with a discussion of pastors, and then it moves into similar qualifications for deacons. Now, verse number 8 says, Likewise, that is, likewise to the pastors, their qualifications that I've just spoken about, likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at the passage for the next few minutes and see some of the qualifications that the man must have before he assumes the office. Now first, we would say that the man must be dutiful. A deacon must be grave. This means that he must be committed and somber. It would correspond to Acts 6.3, which says that he must be honest. All of these meanings are included in the word grave. It means that he understands his responsibilities uh, with seriousness. He is committed to the work that God gives him and to the work that the church expects from him. In Acts 6.3, the duty was the administration of food, that is, taking care of of physical needs of the people. There were so many and there was so much hunger and Christians had lost jobs, all kinds of reasons why um, they were having troubles. But I don't believe it's an indication that the deacons are restricted to physical needs alone. The deacon is to assist the pastor of the church wherever he's needed for the good of the ministry. He assumes this position understanding that there may be some previously unassigned duties, maybe something he doesn't know about, 
But if it's good for the church, he willingly accepts the challenge. And I will say that if a man desires to be a deacon for the title, his desire is for the wrong reason. When the church chooses deacons and a man is considered but not elected, what is that man to do? Does he sit by? Does he sulk because he didn't get the title? If that's what he does, then the Lord was gracious not to allow him to be elected. No true person who wants to serve the Lord is worried about a title. There, there's a, no matter which service that we're in in the church, we're to consider that to be an honor to serve the Lord in any way that we can. Now, we have auxiliary offices. We have a clerk. We have a treasurer. We have a financial secretary and so on. Well, what, what happens? There are many people that run for those positions. Not all of them get elected. What are they to do? Do they just, as I said, sit aside and, and uh, think, well, well, this is a terrible thing that's happened to me. People won't elect me to an office. Well, no, they, they still stay busy in the work. And if they have that feeling that I need this title before I can serve, then again, we're thankful that they didn't get the title and weren't elected. But whatever the pastor deems good for the deacons to do, whatever the church needs, a deacon should be willing to do. But let me caution you with this, as I have before. All of us are to work. All of us are to serve. The deacons are not the only workhorses in the church. They may be the leader of the team. They may be head of a team of workers, but they're not the only ones. It requires all of us to be busy in the Lord's service. Now, the next thing we see in the passage is that a deacon must be truthful. The scripture says not double-tongued. He must stick to the truth. I always uh, caution new deacons to be ready for things that they never expected. Uh, I call this the underbelly of the church. Because of our unique position, the pastors and deacons become aware of problems that they didn't know were a problem and the rest of the church didn't know was a problem. We learned some things that we didn't expect. Sometimes we're shocked and we're disappointed when we, when we discover the private lives of people. There are issues that we deal with that we try to solve before they become too hot to handle and they are harmful to the church. We don't try to hide things from the church. We're just very cautious. And we know when it's time to crack something open, when it's time not to. There is no requirement that we tell everything that we know about everybody. Oh, the nature of our work is to solve spiritual problems, not to exacerbate them. Now, I think one important comment needs to be added to this. If you read the papers... Uh, listen to the news, you've probably heard about this. You've, you've heard about all the trouble that's going on in the Southern Baptist churches, the Southern Baptist Convention, and all the cover-ups there is over sexual abuse. And they're not the only ones that experience this. And in every flavor of church, or so-called churches, this goes on. All stripes are afflicted with this. And so when I speak of secrecy, I do not mean that kind of secrecy. Not the kind of secrecy that covers up the illegal activity of anyone, the moral activities of anyone that abuses the church. No, these are spiritual issues that we deal with, not the legal ones. But what we surely can't have is a deacon that goes house to house, spinning tales to their advantage and to the detriment of others. 
We must keep our discussions in-house, and that's one of the reasons that we don't publish the details of deacons' meetings. The church must have enough confidence in the pastor and the deacons, the men that they select. You must have enough confidence in us that we handle these things, and if, we, if you don't, then our business meetings get out of control. They become melees instead of meetings. So a deacon must be a diplomat at times, But diplomacy does not mean dishonesty. Can't please everybody all of the time. And if you try to do it dishonestly, it will catch up with you. Now, a third thing about the deacon is that he must be exceptional. Must be an exceptional man. There are two characteristics here in the Timothy passage that I want to highlight for just a moment that do make him exceptional from many, many others that are in the church. Here it says he is not given to much wine. Now, it may seem odd that I would pick these out, but I I felt like I should say something about this. It's for the good of all of us. He is not given to much wine. The first part of verse number 8 says, likewise. And that is a reference to the preceding qualifications for the pastor. Verse 3 says the pastor should not be given to wine. This is a prohibition against it. And in the 8th verse, it is just as much a prohibition. Now, I know all the arguments that are made about the use of alcohol and uh, many who say, well, that comes under the category of Christian liberty. So suppose that I were to concede this and I didn't make any arguments about the difference in words in the New Testament and I made no comments about the difference in the alcoholic content of beverages in the first century as opposed to the content of alcohol today, wine and other liquors. Suppose I concede that point then I'll rest my argument on these questions. Is it wise? Is it best? Now, knowing what we know about the harm of alcohol, not just its harmful potential, and what we know about its connections device uh, and its effects on families, its ability to deceive and cause carelessness and recklessness and oftentimes death, then the qualifications or questions are these. How do we qualify the use of Alcohol. What questions do we ask? Well, we ask this. Is it a good choice for a Christian? Is it best for Christians? Is it a better testimony to say, I don't drink, or a better one to say, let's pop down by the pub and have a few? I don't believe the Bible approves of the use of alcohol for anyone, especially in these times. There have been so many families ruined by it. There have been so many people killed by it. There have been so many people fooled by it and made fools by it that I don't see how anybody could possibly make an adequate defense for alcohol on the basis of Christian liberty. Christian liberty means also that you are free not to do it, that you're free to stay away from it. You're free not to expose yourself and your testimony to it. A few years ago, I went to the wedding of a Baptist couple, ceremony that was performed by a Baptist pastor, and at the reception, they brought out the champagne. And I watched for a little while until I saw some good Baptist people making fools of themselves because they drank too much. Now, my subject today is not the use of alcohol. I just took the opportunity to tune you up a little bit on that issue. So I say drink responsibly, which means you aren't too responsible as a Christian if you do. So I don't think we're going to be, I'm going to be invited on the wine tasting tours later today. Uh, 
Well, today it's harder and harder to find that to find that person who's exceptional enough to refuse what many churches, in fact, most churches are branded uh, that they brand this as acceptable behavior. It's okay; they don't care about it. Well, another exceptional person is one who is not in love with his bank account. A deacon must not be greedy of filthy lucre. The King James translators. And the language here is the best because it makes it sound so nasty. He's not to be greedy of filthy lucre. Well, that means he can't be a money lover. He can't let material possessions drive him. The reason for it's obvious. In the Bible times, the deacons took care of many physical needs. They collected money, distributed funds for people's needs. And in taking care of this issue in Acts 6, it is likely the apostles put funds that were collected in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, into these men's hands. Now, we have, a, we have a safeguards in place to keep deacons out of the offering plate, but they do spend church money. They, they have to spend it for various church projects. A deacon must handle church money wisely. And he must be an example of this in handling his own money wisely. So that means a deacon must be an example to the church in his personal tithing. If leadership doesn't handle money scripturally, then how do we expect the membership to? It takes exceptional men not to be tempted by alcohol, not to be tempted by money. Above reproach. No evil accusations made against him that are true and none that are considered reasonable to believe. This is how stellar that all God's people should be. Fourthly, and I think you expect this one for sure, the deacon must be faithful. Verse 9 says, holding, this is 1 Timothy 3, 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. The faith, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes all the doctrines of the church. Now, I've already spoken of Kyle's curiosity about the faith, of course, he does understand the gospel. He understands the simplest parts of the gospel. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by God's grace. But knowing how to be saved is not enough to qualify him for the office. We want deacons who have delved deeper into the faith. They listen. They search out God's word to understand more of this of the operation of this great salvation that's given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I can tell by Kyle's questions that he wants to know more. I can tell by the quality of his questions that he's researched. He's reached enough understanding that he knows what questions to ask. Faithfulness to be in the Word, desiring to do more, is a grand qualification. We see this uh, as an attribute of Stephen in our text of Acts 6-5, that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. This kind of faithfulness is necessary. But there is another aspect of faithfulness in verse number 10 of 1 Timothy 3, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Now we choose men because of faithfulness, whatever they may claim to know, if they don't live what they know, are they really faithful? Are they truly faithful? I would ask you, is it unusual for Kyle to be absent from the church? Are there many church members? I don't know if they're here because they miss so much. I don't expect them to be here. 
When Kyle is not here, his absence is conspicuous. Kyle is always here, so if I don't see him, I look for him. And I say, have you seen Kyle? It's rare that somebody would say, no, I haven't seen him today. It's hard for a man to lead others and be a good testimony to others if he doesn't commit to the services of the church. I haven't yet met a man who has reached a stage of his Christianity in which he doesn't need the church. That he doesn't need to attend church. And I, and I mean attend the church that he's a member of. Now aside from the fellowship and learning that's received by attending church, this is one of the most basic commands of Scripture. If the pastor can't teach people to go to church, he can't teach them anything. I think it was Pastor Castro, when he was here, who said, this is just basic. It's Christianity 101. The battle to reach Christian maturity is lost if people aren't spiritual enough to go to church. And so we look for that man who demonstrates faithfulness in attendance. He proves himself by being faithful in the word that is taught in the church and to the fellowship of God's people in the church. A deacon's faithfulness is also proved by life's daily activities. Scripture says that he is to be blameless. Now there are some people who just lend themselves to constant accusations. Whether they're true or false, they just seem to be magnets for controversy. I've often said that that type of person is one who lives a little bit too close to the edge. And if they haven't done anything wrong, there's just some shadiness about them that looks like dirt even when there isn't any. Well, Kyle's not a shady character. I don't hear anything about Kyle's questionable activities. And that's not to say there are some that I haven't yet heard about. No, I don't think there are any. When I think of character, I remember a good deacon named Grant Evans many years ago. There's no memory of Grant Evans that's a bad memory. Never heard a complaint about him. Never saw flashes of anger. Never heard a word spoken out of order by Grant Evans. And I think about Grant Evans, that aged man who became a deacon in our church and the kind of character that I had. And I think about Kyle, who is still a young man. And a young man who at a very, very early age quits himself well. There are no accusations flying around his head. And that's good because being such a young man, it means that he has the potential of serving this church for many, many years to come. He has the potential to be a rock for this church in future generations. Now let me just lightly touch on verse 11 in 1 Timothy 3. I will read this. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Kyle doesn't have a wife. If you can help him on this, I'm sure that he'll listen intently. Find him a woman, you'll be friends forever. Uh, I will comment that marriage is not a requirement to fill the office. Now, it, it might seem better. Kyle would probably agree with that. Uh, Paul gave many instructions to pastors and deacons and uh, talked about wives and families, but he wasn't married. Uh, He even advised that there are advantages to not being married. Some of the deacons say, yeah, you're right about that. Um, The subject in 1 Corinthians 7 is marriage, and this is what Paul says. He says, for I would that all men were even as I myself. He's talking about not being married. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it's good for them if they abide even as I. 
Now, really what Paul is telling us, it's okay to be married, but it is okay not to be married. Every person has his proper gift, meaning that some God calls some people to be married, some people he does not. Now, I haven't discussed this with Kyle, whether he is developing the gift of singleness, but I suspect he's not trying really hard at it. So if you're critical on the subject, then just please understand this. If you know the word of God, Kyle is not prohibited because he isn't married. He could even be preferred because he's not married. This leads us to our final observation. Number three is the ability of the office. Now, going back now to Acts 6, the deacon's office was added for organizational stability. There were just too many people and too many problems for the apostles to handle. The main work of the apostles was praying for and teaching the people the word of God. Acts 6, 4, the apostles said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The diaconate was established for a different function in the church. Now, there are some who conclude from this that deacons are not to deal with any spiritual duties. In other words, they're not to concern themselves with teaching anybody, not with dealing with spiritual problems of the people. I believe that to be a misinterpretation of scripture. I mentioned before, there's some pastors that are afraid of this. They're afraid to give deacons spiritual responsibilities. And this is because they feel challenged. They're afraid that the people will become loyal to someone else. And there could be a deacon revolt. And they just might take over the church. Now, I remember several years ago, a pastor said to me, uh, as a deacon in the church, he said to me, we went to visit somebody who was very sick and dying. And he said, it's obviously they like you more than they do me. And that's what some pastors are afraid of. And sometimes this happens. It has happened in churches. And with men are not properly qualified, it will happen. If the pastor is, is prideful and controlling, it could happen. If the pastor is the prince of the church, if he's a control freak, that could happen. So some churches don't have uh, the kind of pastor that uh, preached the church as he should. And they would never give deacons spiritual duties because they're afraid of what could happen to them. Deacons in those systems become whipping boys, they're trash gatherers, they're light bulb changers, they're parking lot attendants, that's about it. Deacons should be willing to do all those things, even like Matt and, and Jorge mopping up toilet water a few weeks ago. should be willing to do all those things, but they aren't the pastor's slaves. Deacons belong to the ministry of the church. We are co-laborers for Christ. And although I am the shepherd of the church underneath Christ, I do not desire to strip deacons of spiritual responsibilities. They can be of great help to the church and to the pastor in that role. They can pray with people. They can use their Bibles to reach people. They can stand in the pulpit and preach if we need them. That's not required for them to be preachers, but they can be. It's a great benefit to the church when a pastor has this type of man who can be a spiritual leader. They lead by example in the physical work of the church, but they can also be examples in spiritual leadership. Now we think about this. How valuable was that for me? In the first half of this year, what would I have done without our men to depend on deacons and some of you others that stepped up to help fill those spots so that the church would not go without teaching, without preaching and instruction. So the functional ability of the office is in both the physical and the spiritual realms. 
A pastor does not have much time to deal with the physical plant of the church. And that's precisely the point in verses 2 and 4 of Acts Acts 6. The pastor's time is better spent in prayer and study. But it doesn't mean he's the only person that works in the spiritual realm. So we need these men from both aspects, for both aspects. They're qualified for both if they match the Acts 6 passage and the 1 Timothy 3 passage. Now, you would think then that everything that a deacon does is always and only for others. Not so. Christian service is not only or not just about others. You need to hear me out for just a minute because I'm not going contrary to the scriptures. I'm not saying, well, it's okay for everybody to love self. Everybody takes care of your self-interest and you have selfish motives for everything that you do. No, I'm saying that God builds a personal reward into Christian service. And there's nothing wrong with seeking that personal reward that's promised by God. Rewards are used as incentives for us to endure the hardships of serving Christ. And our passage shows that there is a, a reward for a good deacon that goes beyond the reward of others. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.13, For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. The reward for a faithful deacon, the one that's mentioned here, does not mean a heavenly reward, although heavenly rewards are there as well. There is a heavenly reward. The reward here that he speaks of is the honor and esteem and the respect of God's people. Now, a man who does this right will not ask for the title in advance because he thinks he deserves it, but he will earn that title. He will earn the respect of the office by consistent faithfulness to the Lord and to his people. The deacon that performs well will increase in grace. He has more power with God. He's granted boldness in the faith. God increases his fearlessness through his faithfulness. And this is what we see in Kyle. So we want to put our final seal of approval on the man that we believe Kyle to be. We elected him to the office. This shows that the church has confidence in him. Now we want to follow this with the apostolic precedent of laying on hands. Verse 6 says, they laid their hands on them. Now I'd like for Brother Kyle if you would come and kneel here at the front. I want you to understand that there is no impartation of grace through the laying on of hands. We don't magically transfer any power to Kyle. We don't give him any special gifts of the Holy Spirit or anything like them. We lay on hands to symbolically show approval. He was ordained in the election. Now we're completing the ceremony with an outward show of approval. Now I'd like for us to pray and then the deacons will come and lay on hands. Um, These men that are ordained will do this today and as they do it they represent you as the church. This is the approval of the man for the office. So let's bow our heads now and, and we'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name and we bow our heads in honor 
and for the glory of the name that is above all names and for the God who is above all gods. We thank you for this young man that you brought into our church 10 years ago. Uh, You had your eye on him as you led him to this place. He was part of your sovereign plan for this church. We couldn't have known, neither did we suspect, but you knew what you intended from the beginning. We've seen him grow in your grace. We've seen his faithfulness to your church. We've seen a life dedicated to you and eagerness to know more of the matchless wonders of salvation that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Our Father, this is a man who has earned the trust of the church. Though inexperienced in the position he now takes, we pray that he will continue to grow in his sanctification. We pray that you'll keep him steadfast in his faith and that you will strengthen him for the encounters that he will undergo and the temptations he must endure. Now, Father, he comes into this office in a very difficult time. Not only is the outside world challenging for us to navigate, but inside the church, the work will also be exceedingly challenging. There's much to do, and not enough help to do it. It will require dedication, full concentration on keeping the church vibrant and its witness in this community. And for this reason, we must cling to the promises that we find in your word. There is always the providential care for your children. But we've especially seen this in the scriptures that we've read today. There's a promise that a faithful deacon secures to himself a reward, not only in heaven, but in this life. And the more that Kyle is Christ-like, the more respect he earns from your people. As he holds the church first in his life, He will receive honor and esteem that's not obtained any other way. It's a promise that he will claim if he's faithful to you. And we trust that he will, and that by his faithfulness he'll be a resource for your people. That he'll be uh, a confidant for those who need good advice. He will be a spiritual leader as others observe the adversities he will face. Father, we acknowledge that he has been proved thus far. He he is, as the scriptures demand, a blameless individual who is made worthy by your grace to be considered as a deacon in your church. Not many attain the position, and this speaks of his conduct and earns him the title. As the days grow more difficult, we pray, Lord, you keep him sure and steadfast. Help him to stand by the pastor in the church, especially those who will become his charges as he takes responsibility for their welfare. And now, Father, we are ready to show our approval by a ceremony found in the Holy Scriptures. Those whom the church approves have hands laid on them to show acceptance and confidence. So we, the church, promise that we will support him and pray for him as he ministers to us. Help your people through the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to lift him in their prayers and ask for the protection he surely needs. Now, thank you for each of these other men who have been faithful through the years. We've been blessed to have been a part of their lives and for them to be a part of ours. So, Father, now we give ourselves to you for your service and for our care. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at 
Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.